So what movie is that from? War Games. And in the 1980s, there was a movie called War Games, and it was about a young computer whiz. Jason and I were laughing at the graphics today as he helped me... uh, put those two pieces together. You know, I'm not the, the sharpest knife in the drawer when it comes to computers, and uh, that's not something that we normally we normally do to introduce something. But I thought it was pivotal. I thought it was was a really good way to, to introduce our topic uh, tonight. Because this young computer whiz who loved video games accidentally connects to this super top computer... He's fascinated by the, by the program. He's a hacker, if you will. And you saw there, he, he chooses the game Global Thermal Nuclear War between the, the United States and, uh, and, and Russia. What he doesn't realize, for those of you who've seen the movie, is that it actually taps into NORAD or Whopper or whatever the computer system is and... And it's in control. It's in control of all of the, the United States nuclear arsenal. And it looks like that, that the, uh, the Soviets have launched a, a nuclear strike. And, and the movie's about how, um, the, the U.S. commanders are, uh, are, don't know what to do. Do we, do we launch a counter strike? And, and they're really trying to figure out, uh, um, the best solution. And the reason that I picked the clip is because of what the young man does. After he creates this problem, he, he figures out that the best place to go to figure out a solution to fix the problem and to turn off this computer malfunction is the guy who designed the program, Professor Falcon. So he goes while the government's chasing him and he finds this, this programmer who's a recluse that that designed the, the program. And, and while the government experts in the military hops exhaust their own wisdom in how to respond, this, this young teenager goes to the designer and assumes that he must, have the, he must have the answer. The creator of the program ought to know how to fix the program if it gets broken, right? It's the exact same way with, with our lives, God, as the Creator, designed you, He designed me, He designed everything in, in, in the world. And, and He knows what He created, and, and He knows that we are broken right now. We're, we're running a corrupted program. Adam and Eve, if you will, the first prototypes, they were innocent and perfect until sin came into the world. And from that point forward, we're all born and shaped in iniquity. Depravity has passed from Adam, our, our forefather, our federal head, and we have a corrupted program. And it, and it, it runs. And God is the one who knows how to, knows how to fix it. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be considering, uh, you know, how to get help when our life program uh, uh, runs amok. And sometimes life feels like global thermal nuclear war, doesn't it? And in fact, while, you know, there's probably a, uh, you know, the moral of the, of the story uh, of, of, of war games, at the very end, um, the computer plays tic-tac-toe. And they program it to play against itself. So the computer always puts the X or the O in the center. And, of course, you know if you do that, there's no way to win tic-tac-toe. So it goes through that and it learns, and then it starts playing the nuclear war game. So it launches from the Soviets first. Then it launches from America first. And then, and then it goes through all these different scenarios, and it concludes the only way to win global thermonuclear war is not to play. There's never a winner. So that's the whole point of the, of the movie. You don't have that option. You are, you're here. You're alive on planet Earth. And while it feels like global thermonuclear war, um, for people that die without Christ, it's even worse than that. It's worse than being physically annihilated. And the Bible doesn't just have, the Creator hasn't just given you information of how to fix your life or how to help your life. He's, giving, he's given 
the unsaved world uh, hope and how to escape that uh, that ultimate problem which uh, which will lead to hell. Uh, so our, what we're looking at over the next six weeks is how to help the hurting, and it it, it really touches on some basics of biblical counseling, touches on some some aspects of uh, of scriptural discipleship. And tonight, I'm going to cover the topic of I need help. Uh, scripture as sufficient for any problem that uh, that I face. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to cover what is my problem. We're going to look at the source of our difficulties. So you have the sufficiency of the Word. And then next week, we're going to look at the ultimate source of all of our problems, the source of of, of our help. And then next week, the source of our problems. And then... The following week, on the 18th, we're going to look at why do I act the way that I do? Why do I do the things that I do? Do you ever, do you ever just you do something really dumb and you go, why did I do that? Well, we're going to talk about the, the human soul and motivations and how our motivations and desires lead to actions. And then uh, next is who can help me? Building relationships with others, how the body uh, of Christ, God has designed it uh, to to help each other. And then on July the second, how can others help me? Speaking the truth in love. And then I'll be back on uh, July the ninth. We're all helpers, effective ministry in the uh, in the church. And and we all know um, that we're broken. We all know we're messed up people. One of the things I typically say in premarital counseling. Um, it, when I'm talking about two couples that are coming together, I remind them that they're coming out of one... Each of them are coming out of a, a family, an authorial unit, with a mother and a father. Mother and father typically, regardless of where the marriage or the family is at the point that they come, they've got that background. And they're coming together and they're forming a new authorial unit. You know, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, create a new, a new family. So you've got a new head in that family, so on and so forth. And I always tell them that you need to be aware that you both come from dysfunctional families. And you're getting ready to create a new dysfunctional family <laughs> because you're all sinners. Your mom and dad were sinners, and so they're going to bring baggage to the marriage. And you're going to bring baggage to the marriage, and you're going to create your own baggage. Because we're all sinners. And that creates problems in our home, it creates problems in our marriage, it creates problems in the workplace, it creates problems in our, in our own soul. That's bad news. The good news is God has not, has not left us alone, has He? He hasn't left us without, without help and... He's provided the Scriptures to guide us and His Spirit to empower us to change us. And the Creator has written a book for, for His creation to explain who He is, who we are, and what He expects from us. Now, I could go to a lot of different passages to talk about how the Bible or how the, how the, the, the Word of God that which comes from our Creator, given to us, His creation, to, to tell us who He is, who we are, and, and what He expects from us. I could go to a number of different passages. I'm not going to go to any that I'm getting ready to show you, but, but they are foundational, and I just want to go over uh, a few of them with you. The first one is Second Peter chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be up on the screen. I'm going to have you in the book of Psalms tonight. But Second Peter 1 tells us that God has not left us alone. We preached through Second Peter, and I hammered this, this point. Peter lays the foundation of, of grace. And, and once he gets about uh, six, seven verses in, he tells us to strive, to, to labor to the point of exhaustion, to add to our faith virtue. And then he goes to that list there of, of how we're, we're to strive to grow in our Christian life. But he, he talks about our growth and our effort built on this platform of what God has provided. And, and the key verse in what God has provided is Second Peter chapter 1. It tells us God's not left us alone in this mess. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that you need pertaining to eternal life and everything that you need pertaining to godliness, to life on earth, to life, living a life that pleases God. Everything you need to know about salvation and everything you need to know about sanctification. Everything you need to know, His divine power has granted everything pertaining to eternal life and to godliness. And that comes through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. God has not left us alone in this in this mess. Probably a more familiar passage tells us where the source of our help comes from. That's 2 Timothy 3, 15 through, through 17. Paul's telling Timothy that from a childhood you have known the sacred writings or the scriptures which are able to give you wisdom that leads to, to salvation. So there's the salvation part, just like... In 2 Peter, everything pertaining to life, that's eternal life. Godliness, that's living the Christian life. Paul says the exact same thing that Peter does. From a child, you've known the Scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. There's the life part, the eternal life part, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture, Old and New Testament, all Scripture is inspired, it is God-breathed, it's inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, for instruction or training in righteousness. It's good for that. What's the result of the Scriptures? Verse 17, here's the result. So that the man of God may be adequate, man or woman, that's just the, the Christian, may be adequate, equipped for... Some good works, every good works. Everything pertaining to eternal life and godliness, Peter says. The Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation and equip you for every good work. So both of those passages, God hasn't left us alone and He declares the source is the Bible. It's profitable to teach, to correct, to instruct, to reprove. And then... Jude chapter 1 verse 3 tells, her that, tells us that we're not waiting on any more information. There's no information that is yet to be added. And this is important. You don't have to seek a sign. You don't have to look for a vision. You don't have to wait for a prophetic utterance. Jude chapter, well, Jude verse 3 tells us there's no information to be added. Beloved, although I was very eager to write unto you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. Once for all delivered unto the saints. So you have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to good works that comes from a Bible that was once for all delivered. There's no new information. You know what that says? It says that no matter what you face in life, no matter what I face in life, God loved us enough that He didn't leave you alone and He's given you all of the answers in this book. And that is a blessed, blessed truth. If you've lived long enough to live life, you know you need something outside of yourself to figure it out, don't you? I mean... You may live the Christian life, you may go through life um, not even paying attention to God or even reading the Bible on a regular basis, but when you hit the wall, when you step in a bucket, when things go south, however you want to phrase it, you have a place to run, and that's in, the, that's in the Scriptures. If you put all three of those verses together, in other words, the Scriptures are sufficient in the sense that they're the only, once for all, they're the only inspired, therefore inerrant, words of God that we need in order to know the way of salvation and the way of obedience to make you wise unto salvation and equip you for every good work. This is called the doctrine of the sufficiency of, of Scripture. You have... 
probably multiple copies of God's Word. All a non-Christian needs to find hope you have in your lap tonight, on your phone, on your iPad, sitting on your shelf at home. All a non-Christian needs to find hope and all a Christian needs to find help, and that's in the Bible. You probably all agree with that and have probably heard that before. What I have found, though, is Christians know that that's the doctrine that they're to believe, but then when it comes to practice it, sometimes there is a disconnect. You don't have to answer this, but let me ask you a couple questions. Is the Bible totally sufficient for everything that relates to parenting? Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, that would probably... What about everything related to schizophrenia? Is the Bible totally sufficient for everything that relates to schizophrenia? What about post-traumatic stress disorder? Is the Bible sufficient for everything related to post-traumatic stress disorder? What about depression? What about facing suffering? What about substance abuse? What about anger? What about immorality? What about salvation? you begin to put yourself to the test, what you will find is what the world communicates to us on a regular basis is that areas called mental health or areas that, that, that society has kind of carved out and put in a black box and says, that's for the professionals and you really can't know anything about that. You, you need to go there to find the answer. When the Bible declares that God as the Creator has given you a resource, everything related to life and godliness. Now, people have to have skill whenever you get into some of those complex issues like schizophrenia or otherwise, how to use the Bible, but the Scriptures are totally sufficient. And I want to show you that tonight in the book of Psalms. So go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We're going to build... On this topic, every night, you'll hear next Wednesday the problem. Problems can be organic in nature, totally legitimate organic issues that could be anything from chemical to hormone to thyroid to... You know, you got out of surgery and you were under anesthesia, and because you were under anesthesia, you, you fall into a depressive funk for a couple weeks. It could be organic. A problem can also be spiritual. A problem can be spiritual in the sense that there are spiritual forces, the Bible tells us, that's all around, angels and demons. They're real. You can't see them. You can't control them. Nowhere does the Bible tell you to run around throwing holy water on demons or cast out exorcisms or anything like that. You have two weapons, preach and pray. You can't control demons. You can't command demons. MacArthur said one time, you can't get your kids to obey you. Why do you think the demons or the devil are going to do what you say? Okay, Don't command demons to do anything. God can command the demons. You can't. So you don't really have any control over the spiritual realm other than preach the gospel to others and yourself because Colossians says you've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, that's the domain of Satan, into the kingdom of his dear son. So the gospel translates you. The gospel can convert. And then you pray. You appeal to God. Um, So you have an organic issue. You have a spiritual issue. You really can't do anything about it. And the other is a sin issue. And as you'll hear next Wednesday night, it is the most gracious thing in the world that God could do to call our issues that are sin, sin. Because sin can be repented of and sin can be forgiven. And all of that comes from from the Bible. Psalm 19 is one of the most comprehensive statements regarding the sufficiency of Scripture. If someone would say, what verse would you use or where would you go to declare the sufficiency, complete and total sufficiency of Scripture. The first thing that probably comes to my mind is the Second Timothy passage, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But Psalm 19 actually is the most comprehensive statement that I can find regarding the sufficiency of Scripture. 
And it is the psalm of David. David declares here in Psalm 19 that the word is sufficient to meet every need of the human soul. And he gives an inspired statement that maintains it's a guide for every situation. The Bible is surer than human experience. If you stand back and observe human beings long enough, you're going to find that we behave pretty much the same. Now, you may not do the same thing that another human being does, but put a group of human beings in some room or a microcosm where you can observe them, and you will be able to find common sin patterns and common behaviors. And doesn't the Bible declare just that? There's no temptation taking you, but such which is common unto man. The Bible sure than human experience. Human experience, you can learn some things from, but the Bible will teach you more than human experience. You can look at your child, you can go to your grandfather who's lived a lot longer than you. If you're the parent, you're going to say, you need to listen to me because I know what I'm doing. I've been where you've been. And the kid says, yeah, yeah, right, blah, blah, you know. But you know, you have. And you can go to somebody who is older in the congregation that's lived longer in marriage or whatever it might be and say, help me here. And they can give you good words. They can help you because they've experienced things. But their experience pales in comparison to what the Creator has provided for us. It contains a guide, and it'll last forever. David says God's Word is perfect, it's trustworthy, it's right, it's radiant, it's enlightening, it's sure, and it's altogether righteous. It's perfect. Because it's inspired by, by God. Now, before I... We're going to look at uh, verses 7 through 11. That's where we're going to spend our time tonight. But I want to show you how Psalm 19 is broken down. It's divided into two sections. Verses 1 through 6, focused on general revelation. And then the second section is verses 7 through 11, focused on special Revelation. Look at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 6. The chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He is set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run a race. It's rising from one end of the heaven, and its circuit is to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from, from its heat. In those six, first six verses, God is declaring He's revealed Himself through general or natural revelation, which is creation. Same thing Romans 1 says. We know that there's a God... Because when we look around, we see the majesty of creation. He says, His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. His handiwork is the glory of God. Creation reveals the glory of God, and the glory of God is revealed in His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night after night reveals knowledge. It means that as the world turns, as creation continues to go, it's constantly, continually, non-stop declaring the glory of God, that there is a God and He is glorious. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals. What's the speech that's that day after day? What's it saying? It's saying the glory of God. And this is the handiwork of, of God. Night and the night reveals knowledge. You look up into, the, into, the, into the, the blue sky during the day and you look and see the stars at, at night. Look at verse 3. There is no speech nor language where their voice, their voice, that's creation, in the day and in the night, constantly. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You know what that declares? There's no place on the planet where God has not given a witness of Himself. 
doesn't matter what language you speak or where you're at, the deepest, darkest jungles of Peru to the skyscrapers of New York City, the voice of creation speaks. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Talking about the universality, is that right? Of the Word. Thank you, Richard. Richard said that's close. I agree with Richard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. He's talking about how universal it is. And then he gives an illustration. In them, in day and night, in the firmament, in the heavens, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Um, it's the idea that in creation, the sky is like a tabernacle and the sun. It's like a stage for the sun to put itself on display, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It's a picture of when the sun comes up in the morning. It's the same picture of when a bridegroom enters the room for everybody to see, all decked out for, for the wedding. The sun does that every morning rejoices like a strong man to run the race. The, the sun comes onto the scene and it's declaring day after day universally the glory of God and that there is a Creator. Verse 6, does it all day long. It's rising is from one end of the heavens and the circuit is to the other end. It goes up and it comes down and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Notice he says there is nothing hidden from its heat, not nothing hidden from its light. You could be blind and not see the light of the sun, but you're blind and you can still feel the heat of the sun. There is nothing hidden from its heat. It's exactly what Romans 1 declares. All men are without excuse. Creation renders every human being without excuse. They cannot stand before God one day and say, I didn't know there was a Creator. But they might not know His name because nobody ever, nobody ever told them the name of Jesus. But creation is enough to reveal and it's enough to condemn. But look at how He turns here in verse 7. He turns from creation, the heavens and the firmament, to the Word. The Word is described in verse 7 through verse 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, and more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And the honeycomb, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Now notice how this, this goes, beginning in verse 7. The first phrase is what the Bible is. The second phrase is what it does. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It converts the soul. See that? The statutes of the Lord are right. What does it do? Rejoices the heart, brings joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. What does it do? It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. What does it do? It endures forever. I want you to notice also how God's thought of everything. Look, if you would, at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. You see that? You see G-O-D? In verses 1 through 6, it's always the same. It's L. It's the word for God. Now look at verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10. Do you notice a change there? See capital L-O-R-D? That's Yahweh. So in the first part, He's declaring exactly what the Bible teaches. God is the God of all mankind. Creation is a witness to all mankind. And then Yahweh is the covenant name of God. Those who are in relationship with Him look to the Word and find all of these great benefits. And that's you.
So, if we go through verse 7 through verse 9, you're going to find six statements that David makes about the sufficiency of God's Word. And, you know, the, the Bible is this and it does that. And we're going to look at those. And the first one, the Scripture is perfect converting the the soul. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments, the fear, the judgments, those are all synonyms for the Word of God. All synonyms for Scripture. The Scripture, or in verse 7, the law is perfect. That's what it is. Law refers to, in in this case, the sum total of the Bible. Now, there are many times when you read the Scriptures where the Apostle Paul talks about you're free from the law. He's talking about the Mosaic Code, the Mosaic Covenant. There are other times when he's talking about the law, he means the Ten Commandments. There are other times when the Bible speaks about the law, he's talking about all of God's Word. David here is talking about all of God's Word, the sum of what God has revealed for our instruction. Think of it as the whole Bible. The whole Bible, the law of the Lord is perfect. The word perfect means whole or complete, or our word, sufficient. The law of the Lord is sufficient. It means the Bible lacks nothing. It's the first thing that David declares about the Bible. It's sufficient. It lacks nothing. You need to turn nowhere else. It's comprehensive in nature. It contains everything necessary to one's spiritual life. Obviously, in contrast to other things. It's in contrast. If the Bible is perfect, there are other things that it's contrasted to that are imperfect, that are incomplete, that are flawed. You know, I was thinking about this when I was preparing, and this thought just came to me as I'm talking. You know how John says that not everything that Jesus did was recorded in the Bible, and the world wouldn't contain the books if it was all recorded? I wonder how much of the world would be taken up to, if you took all of the failed philosophies of human beings and all of the musings and the pontifications, flawed as they are, and put them all in one room, how much space that would that would take up. Stuff that's been improved or discredited. When when we say the Bible is complete, when David says the law of the Lord is perfect, we mean that as it relates to what it's intended to speak on. Carl Truman, I think, helps in, in telling us what the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean. What does this word not mean? The law of the Lord is perfect. Truman says, we do, of course, need to parse what we mean when we say that this Scripture is sufficient. If my car breaks down or I'm trying to work out who committed the crime in a particularly complex whodunit, I will not find a particular answer for that in the Bible. Nor will I find discussions on the human genome, the rules of cricket, or the wing markings of the North American butterfly. This is one of Nathan's favorite pithy writers who is English, which is why you hear the rules of cricket or the wing markings of the North American butterfly. In fact, the scope of Scripture's sufficiency is neatly summarized in the third question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, what the duty of God, what duty God requires of man. In other words, the Scriptures are sufficient for a specific task. They reveal who God is. They reveal what man is in relation to him and how that relationship is to be articulated in terms of worship. Who God is, who you are, and how to be in right relationship with that God. Now, I promise you, if you know who God is and who you are and you're worshiping him, you will do a whole lot better trying to figure out the human genome as without God. But that's not going to be found in the pages of Scripture you can use additional resources to fix your car. You don't pull your New Testament out when you're looking for the diagram to put the blade on your lawnmower. But when it relates to God or spiritual issues or you in figuring out the ways of life, 
the Bible is totally sufficient. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Look at the second half of that. This is what it is, this is what it does. It, it converts. It renews. It restores. The word means to refresh or to transform. The law of the Lord is sufficient transforming or converting the soul. It transforms the soul. Now, don't let that go past quickly. The Bible, the law of the Lord, the entirety of the Bible is totally complete. It's totally sufficient, transforming the soul. Do you know how many millions of dollars are spent every year just in the United States of America to transform your body through exercise or diet programs or whatever it is, or books for the mind, or to transform your finances, or to transform your marriage, or to transform whatever else it is. This verse, single verse, says the Bible transforms the soul, the complete human being. It has the ability to change you from the inside out, as Pastor Stephen quotes to the students all the time. David says the Scripture is so powerful, so comprehensive, that it can convert, it can transform an entire person, changing them into what God wants them to be. And those of you who are in here who are saved, say hallelujah. You know that. You become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you have been converted when somebody preached the Word to you. It was not sound reasoning or, or a convincing argument that the pastor that was preaching the day I was saved that converted me. It wasn't that. It was the word about Jesus. He declared what God said about sin, about the consequences, and then what God did about it, that He loved me so much that He came to die in my place. And that was the message that transformed my life. At that point... I didn't need to hear how to fix my life. I needed to know who could change me. Tell people about Christ. It's not your apologetical arguments. Hold on to apologetics. Know them. Know the sound arguments that are there. But what people need to hear is Jesus. Tell people about Christ and Him crucified. Your testimony, your arguments are good. They have a place. But Jesus is who they need to hear about. All right? The law of the Lord is perfect. It transforms. It can transform you. It's sufficient to transform you. The Scripture is, number two, trustworthy, imparting wisdom. It says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Scripture is trustworthy. Sure. Imparting wisdom. It makes wise the simple. David, in verse 7, comments further on the sufficiency of the Bible. He says the testimony of Yahweh is sure. Now, what do you think of whenever you hear the word testimony? I'm going to give you my testimony. What do you think of? I'm going to tell you a personal testimony. I'm going to share with you what happened to me. This says the Bible is the testimony of God. It's the testimony of God. It's God's testimony. That's why... If you deny the Bible, or to deny the Bible is to reject God Himself, because the Bible is God's testimony. God is testifying about creation. God is testifying about His choice of Abraham. God is testifying about how He preserved Jacob. God is testifying about Israel. He's testifying about Himself. He's testifying about Jesus. He's testifying about what is sin and what's not and what is salvation and what's not and, and how to come to God and how not to come to God. He's testifying. I'm not testifying of that. God's testifying of that. It's God's testimony. So to deny the Bible is to reject God's testimony. The Bible declares to be God's very words. And so to say it's incorrect or it's flawed or to receive only part of it, is to call God a liar. And that's how serious it is. Now, one of the things I tell people to do if you're going to share Christ with somebody, and you don't know a lot of the Bible, I say, start with your personal testimony. 
Because if you're dealing with somebody, they're going to chase all kinds of rabbits. Well, what about the pygmies in Africa? Or, well, I, what, the Bible's been translated a hundred different times. So they, you know, they give you all kinds of, of scapegoats to try to stay away from the issue of where do they stand with God. Who do you say Christ is? But they can't argue with your personal testimony because it happened to you, right? I mean, they can't say, Richard Jett, that didn't happen. Because Richard says, I, I know exactly it happened because it happened to me and I was there. God is saying this is his personal testimony and to argue with that or to deny it is to call God a liar. I think I've shared this with you before, but before I became the pastor of, of Cornerstone, I was clueless about the, the congregation or the church or anything. And they asked me to preach, and the very first sermon I preached was on Mother's Day. And I preached out of Titus chapter 2, uh, reclaiming motherhood or something about I mean, woman. I don't remember the title. But all I did is what I do every single Sunday and just exposit Titus 2. And a woman about halfway through the service got up and literally ran out of the church crying. Now, that's something they don't teach you in seminary, exactly what to do in the middle of the sermon. So I'm like, what happened? Did somebody pinch her? I mean, did she get a you know, bad phone call or what? The second sermon, there was a 30-year-old lady who was converted. She ran crying in the opposite direction. The first one ran out the back, the other one ran to the front. When I spoke to the lady that ran out of the church crying, she told me that I offended her. She, she left mad because I offended her in what I preached out of Titus chapter 2. And um, I asked her, why? You know, why would I, what did I say that was so offensive? And, and we went, we opened up Titus 2, and what offended her was what Titus 2 said. I mean, she's point like said, it wasn't anything you said. It's exactly what those verses communicate. So she affirmed that I didn't say something dumb, which is possible. I didn't chase a rabbit and, and you know, stick my foot in my mouth. She was offended by what the Bible said. And I said, well, I can't change what the Scripture says. And she said, well, I don't believe that part of Scripture because that's what Paul wrote, not what Jesus wrote. I said, what do you mean that's what Paul wrote and what Jesus wrote? And she said, well, I only follow the words of Jesus, the ones that are in red. You remember the old red-letter Bibles? Nathan and I were talking about this the, the other day. We, had, we engaged somebody else that said something about they were a red-letter Christian. She only followed the words of Jesus, which are the words in red in the Ten Commandments. As far as she was concerned, that was the only part of the Bible that was God's Word and that was authoritative, the rest was from man. The Bible in its entirety is God-breathed. All Scripture. All Scripture. There is not one letter, not one yod, not one jot, not one tittle that's not included in that statement. It is inspired down to the very syntax, down to the very words. The word sure, the testimony of the Lord is sure, it means unwavering, it means trustworthy, it means immovable, it means reliable. The testimony of God, God's testimony is immovable. God's testimony is reliable. God's testimony is trustworthy. God's testimony will not fail. That's what David is saying. You can trust God's testimony. It will not fail. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 2. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. That's what he's saying. Which you will do well to pay attention to as a light, as a lamp shining in a dark place into the day dawns, the morning star arises in your hearts. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The prophetic word was made even more reliable, if you will. You can trust God's testimony, and it will make wise the simple. That's what it says. It's what, it's, it's what it is. It's what it does. It makes making the wise, make, making wise the simple. 
You ever look back on your unsaved life and thought about some of the things you did or the decisions that you make and you go, how in the world could I be so stupid? You ever think of that? I mean, how could I be that ignorant? How did you come to see that you were ignorant and learn? How did you move from being simple to being wise? You look to the Bible. The Bible makes an ignorant, sin, simple person wise. That's what it does. You can look there. And a lot of problems in life come from because we're simple and we make dumb decisions. And the Bible can give us wisdom. All right, look at the third one. Scripture is right, causing joy. I love this one. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Scripture is right, and it causes joy. It's what it is. It, it is right. What it, does it do? It brings joy. Scripture brings joy. The word is precepts or statutes. The statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. Precepts are divine principles. They're guidelines for character and conduct. Follow these principles. Um, I can remember when I was in the Boy Scouts, when it was still the Boy Scouts. And I can remember the Scout Code, and you followed certain principles that were there. Here are the precepts or the statutes, the principles of the Lord, the guidelines for character and conduct. Since God has created us, everything about us, He knows the way to live. He knows the right code of conduct. He knows the guidelines for character. what's, What's the thing that typically comes into an unsaved person's mind about following the Bible. A life lived following the Bible. What do they think? No. Boring. You know, I mean, you, you, you wear your horn rim glasses and, you know, you put the jerry curl on and you look like you fell off the of Time Magazine 1950 and you just get up every morning and, you know, you're so wooden. You, you know, you, you quote Scripture all day long. It's a boring, horrible life. Is that what this verse says? Following the guidelines of God brings joy to the Christian life. God's not a killjoy. Any commandment that God gives is not to remove joy, it's to bring joy. Because God knows if you violate those commands, it's not going to bring you joy, or if it does, it's temporary pleasure, and then you're going to have to pay the piper or pay the devil, or your body, or whatever else it might be. Follow the guidelines of the Lord, and you'll find true, lasting joy. Now, you know the lie of the world. The lie of the world is, you can have all joy now, without cost, immediate gratification. You can have it all without any payment. The Bible says the way of wisdom will take you longer, it has to do with self-control, sometimes delayed gratification. But you know in anything that you have followed the ways of the Lord in your life, you know that when you do, you're going, I am so thankful. I am so filled with joy. I used to think as an unsaved man, I don't become a Christian because I don't want, then I have to give up all the fun. I'll, I'll have to stop doing everything I like to do. The wonderful thing about conversion is that God changes your (laughs) want-tos. The very thing that I wanted to do is what was killing my soul and destroying my life. And God did take away those want-tos, hallelujah. And He gave me a new want-to. I have much more fun now living for the Lord than I ever did as an unsaved man. It's real joy. It's not some counterfeit trinket that ends. The ways of the world, it always ends. The football game is always over. There's always a Monday morning. There's always an end to the party, and then you usually have to pay for whatever you did. It's not that way with God. Jesus never ends, and He gets better and better, and God has given us His Word not to steal our joy, but to give us joy. Number four, it's sufficient. 
It's sufficient to transform the soul. It's sufficient to make you wise in all areas, even when you're simple. It's sufficient to bring you joy for living. It's also sufficient to enlighten the eyes. Scripture is pure, enlightening the eyes. Scripture is pure. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. What do you think of whenever you hear the word commandment? This is a sentiment for scriptures, for the scriptures. Commandment. What do you think of? Do and don't. The word commandment is used here. David is stressing the Bible's non-optional nature. The Bible is not optional. In fact, it's part of being a Christian. One of the things that you do, and I've said this to you before, it's not my job to try to convince you to listen to the Bible if you're a Christian. Now, that may be different as an unsaved person. But as a Christian, it's not my job to convince you to listen to the Bible. You've already bought into the fact that you want to hear the Bible because you want to know God because that's exactly what Peter tells us. You desire the sincere milk of the Word. You long for God's Word as a Christian like a baby that's hungry desiring its mother's milk. The Bible is not optional. The Bible says that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. He is your Savior. He's also your Master. How do you know what your Master tells you to do? He tells you what to do in the Bible. To reject the Bible or to claim it's optional or to claim it has partial authority is to reject the position of Almighty God as Lord. It's pure. He says, the commandment of the Lord, the binding nature of the Bible, the commands of the the Lord are pure. It's Now, when I hear the word pure, I think of like clean water. But that's not... It's kind of what it means, but it's not pure like I'm going to desire the pure milk of the the word. It means that it's, it's clear. It's not mystifying or it's not confusing. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The... The commands of God, what the Bible declares to do and not to do, is plain. It's clear. And most religions in the world have books, teachings, and most of those are only understood by certain men. They're even purposely written in a, in a mystifying way, and the more confusing it is, the more spiritual it sounds, right? That's not so with the Bible. God's Word is not some book of religious recipes that only the sages can interpret. Think of the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is God's testimony to reveal Himself to all mankind. Why would He make, a, why would he make it hard to understand? Why would He make it a, a, uh, you know, something only a few people can understand? Now, you might have to work to properly, rightly divide and interpret the Bible, but the Bible was written to you. And it was written so... Even the smallest child can understand what is necessary and the deepest theologian can't exhaust its depth. And because of God's absolute clarity, it brings enlightenment or understanding. Look at the second part. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The the Bible is clear. And the clarity that comes from the Bible, the absolute clarity brings enlightenment. It brings understanding to the eyes. It, It brings light to a dark place. Have you ever been confused about life? Have you ever not known what to do? And you went to the Word and it became so plain. I mean, it's like light in a dark place. We have uh, lights, uh, the can lights in our basement. It's got a little dimmer on it that you can turn it, you know, up and down. Well, the light switch to the to the can lights that are over close to where the fireplace is and the sitting area and the TV and all that is far away from the steps. Well, there's no windows. So you have to turn the light off over there. And then it's pitch black. And then you have to kind of, you know, you got your eyes open, but I always put my hands out because I just know I'm going to, you know, bump into the wall and I'm walking like that. Big difference the way that I walk. 
Then when the light's on, I don't worry about bumping into anything. Go to the clarity, allow God's Word to give you clarity and light in, in your life, and it's like walking with the light on rather than groping around in the, in the darkness. Look at the next one, number five. The Scripture is clean, enduring forever. Look at nine. The fear of the Lord is clean. He's still talking about the Scriptures. That is a synonym for God's Word. He uses fear. Fear speaks of the reverential awe of God that compels us to bow in worship. What David is saying is the Bible is a worship manual. John chapter 4 is a verse where Jesus tells a Samaritan woman, You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and He seeks such worshipers. Everybody is worshiping something, but only God is worthy of worship. And only the worship of God endures forever. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. Scripture is clean. It's without corruption. It's, it's without sin. It's without evil. And the truth about God is undefiled. And so because of that, because it's not corrupted, it endures. It's lasting. Scripture is eternal. It's unalterably perfect. Jesus said in Matthew twenty four thirty five, Heaven and earth will not pass away, but, my, but they will pass away, but my words will not. Psalm 119, 89, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It's settled. It stands firm in the heavens. MacArthur tells a story of he agreed to debate a, a man uh, who led an evangelical homosexual denomination and asked MacArthur asked him what do you do with the Bible's condemnations of homosexuality as sin and the man's answer was oh come on I mean everybody knows that the Bible is psychologically unsophisticated reflecting the views of primitive thinking the Bible is antiquated in its sociological theory you can't go to an ancient document like this and expect to deal with 20th century social problems. The Bible ought to, say, ought to stay in its own environment. It needs to be updated with contemporary understanding of psychological and sociological phenomena. You know what you hear there? Hath God said, Eve? It's nothing but satanic garbage. Let's grieve God whenever we slander Him that way by claiming the Bible is outdated. You don't make the Bible relevant. The Bible doesn't need to be updated or become more sophisticated. It doesn't need to be updated for our educated society. Think of how stupid that is. As if we can out-educate ourselves beyond God. Whatever time or culture you live in, it's eternally relevant. It's fixed forever. It endures forever. And here's the last one. Scripture is true, altogether righteous. David summarizes the final characteristics. The judgments of the Lord. The judgment of the Lord. We're waiting for the judge to come down with his verdict. That's what this word means. Judgment is the divine verdict. He is saying, David is saying, the Bible is the divine verdict on all things from the supreme judge of all the earth. The Bible is the standard by which we judge all things that, pertaining to, that pertain to life and eternity. So many suggestions and theories of how to make life better, Solve the problems of our day and answer the questions. They're human wisdom at best. And you've probably tried them. You've probably been disappointed by them. Here is the divine verdict for all of life from the Creator and the Supreme Judge of all of the universe. And they're right. Complete. They're righteous altogether. If you're tired of the world's advice, 
that's only leave, that only leaves you hopeless and empty, turn to God's Word because He's given us truth and that truth is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament says, um, you shall know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. Set you free from problems in life. It may not be easy. But the answer is found in God's sufficient Word. If you read the rest of it, it ends with a prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my strength and my Redeemer. That's the cry of every every believer. Psalm 19 declares the Scripture is sufficient. Where can you go for help? You can go to the Bible. If you don't know where to turn in the Bible, the Lord has given other people, elders and others in the church, to help you. And we'll cover that as we go. Next week we'll look at um, the sin problem. 